Amen. Would you bow your head in prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we're humbled as we as we stand here and during these songs, as we sit here before your word, as we pause and consider the weight of this season, which reminds us of a season in time, a season in the history of redemption, where the dawning light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, rose on mankind, never to be extinguished. There was a prophecy of old, Isaiah and others, that lands that had been obscured in darkness of sin, that had been abandoned and left desolate and without hope, torn by war, destruction, famine, disease, and peril, the consequences of sin inside and outside. There would come a day when light would dawn on places like that, the remotest corners of the human heart and the furthest reaches and corners of this globe that had been trampled underneath the weight of judgment and sin. On them a light would dawn, and that light would be more than just an awakening of the intellect or an awakening of a people group only to die again but it would be a comprehensive resurrection of body and soul such that we would never again suffer under the eternal judgment that our sin deserved and the futility and despair of the future that promised. But you would preserve for yourself, Lord, by your resurrection power, a people who are set apart and made holy by your precious blood shed, who would enter into heaven one day and fulfill, in the most ultimate sense, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we have experienced the privilege of this light dawning on our souls if we confess faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. The faith we've already heard this morning is an absolute sovereign gift. And so may our affections and hearts overflow with worship and praise and gratitude this season. And may our heart be excited to learn, Lord, more about what this truth means for our present and our future. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. This may be a message where you want to grab a copy of the notes in the back. If you don't have them already, if you need to slip out and grab them, that's, a, that's just fine. My hope is to move through some material very quickly. One thing I like to do around this time of year, the close of the season, or a close of the old year and the dawn of the new and especially the Christmas season, is to look for some overview aspects in the Word of God or some overview themes in Scripture that might provide you a bigger picture, a grander scope, a providential heaven's eye view, if you will, of some of the glorious truths of our great salvation. So this year I've 
planned a couple of messages along those lines, and the first one this morning is called Heaven's Loudspeaker. Heaven's Loudspeaker. There's two bookends, two scriptural reference bookends, if you will, for this message. The first is in Genesis 3, 8 through 19. It's the very first mention, although in cryptic form, if you will, the gospel. And the last bookend that we'll close with this morning is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, the second to the last chapter chapter in the canon, where the loudspeaker of heaven echoes in uh, John's vision of promises for a future that is a glorious fulfillment in the, of the promise of the covenant to the fullest manifest degree that a believer will ever experience and that we as his people are looking forward to. The theme of this message, Heaven's Loudspeaker, seeks to do this. Identify a few points in Scripture. I have seven chosen and we'll just land on each one briefly. Seven points in Scripture where the audible voice of the Heavenly Father echoes from the heaven, or sometimes it's referred to as the clouds or in the garden. But somewhere in the experience and in the ears of the people listening, the actual voice of God is heard. Man's spiritual ears are open, sometimes a couple, one or a few. Man's spiritual ears are open to hear the Word of God from the lips of God, unmediated through His ordinary means. That is, it's not just reading Scripture at these moments. It's not the prophet speaking. It is directly from the voice of God to the ear of man, the loudspeaker of truth. What I found interesting in preparing for this message is that plotting these points, and though there are more than the ones we'll touch on, there aren't very many more, And these are some of the most important ones, I think, or the ones that stand out in Scripture. But plotting these points in biblical and redemptive history, where man hears the audible voice of God, affords us a heaven's eye perspective, a panoramic overview of redemptive history. Pay attention to these seven points on your outline, and you'll see that they take the shape of the gospel. The moments that God chose to intervene in and to interrupt man's experience with his own voice are interesting. And as you plot those points on a map, as it were, you can see the shape of Scripture itself. Um, Just an illustration to help you along, to help you follow the rest of the message. Some of you raising kids right now may remember a very famous computer game called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Anyone ever play that game on that old original Mac, DOS system, computer, or whatever? So Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which is a very long title for a very simple game because technology hadn't advanced to what it is now, and now we can uh, wear all our sin on our sleeve, and it kind of shows a precipitous moral decline in the video games that we have these days. But there was a time in the not-too-distant past where video games were very simple. And Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was a detective game. And there was different points in the game where you would uh, find clues. And then that point, like say Budapest, Hungary or something, you'd find a clue there and that would lead you to another city. And in between those scenes where you're gathering clues, there would be a graphic that would appear on the screen of like an airplane icon or a dot or something like that 
moving across a map. If you're not familiar with that computer game, maybe you've, maybe you've seen a movie that included a high-speed international chase. And to pass the time and give you a sense, and probably to uh, keep the budget low, to give you a sense of the movement of the plot, the movement of the characters, in between scenes where the action is happening, there'll be a map and a point that's moving across the map to indicate where the action or the plot is traveling to the next point. So I kind of imagine a scenario like that in this message. The first point, the point of origin being in Genesis chapter 3, as we track the path of redemptive history through the loudspeaker of God's audible voice. Here in Genesis 3, we have the account of what the theologians call the proto-evangel. The proto-evangel means the first gospel. Proto-first evangel gospel. This is a moment that incorporates at least three aspects of the historical record for us. Creation, covenant, and curse. Creation, covenant, and curse are all here as themes in these first couple chapters, first few chapters in the book of Genesis. That's the first point of this message. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was... In the beginning, I'm sorry, almost quoted John 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The voice of the Lord is recorded in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate from the waters, and it was so. God said again in verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation in verse 11. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, verse 14. God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. We have the record of God's voice. But at this time, we don't know that it's audible to man. And certainly before he was created, it was not audible to man. But there is a record of God's audible voice in Genesis chapter 3. And we find this in verse 8. And this is shortly after the fall. As you recall, Adam and Eve had fallen from their, I presume, short-lived, amazing experience of fellowship with God in the garden. And here we pick up on their story. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, that is man, Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God answers, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
Notice verse 15. Here we have the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here we have in these first three chapters the account, in part, of creation. We have a hint of covenant, and we have a curse. The curse that's pronounced against sin comes first over Satan himself, the serpent. But in this curse of the certain serpent, is also a promise. I will, verse 15, put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And this phrase, which rings out from the very beginning of Scripture with the truth of the gospel encapsulated, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is, with the fullness of the new covenant revelation in our mind, we can read this as follows. Jesus Christ shall bruise, destroy Satan utterly and forever. Satan will temporarily bruise, kill Jesus Christ. But he will rise from the dead. And from this offspring of woman will come the hope for all mankind. The audible voice of God in the garden speaking to man. You note the environment that this moment disrupts. Sin has entered into the experience of the universe, the experience of mankind. And now, where once was peace and fellowship in the cool of the garden, is the voice of the Lord crying, where are you? When the voice of the Lord rings out from Genesis 3, where are you? The implication is an ominous ring of separation. A separation of God's creatures, His children, from Him, that no bridge aside from the death of His Son could ever reconcile or mend. At this first audible note of God's voice in Scripture, we have the declaration of the distance between a holy God and sinful man. The curse of sin is that it separated man from God, that he would be judged, he would be an object of wrath, and rightly so, because of the holiness that God's character demands. And when God says, where are you? It's a declaration of distance. And later, as the scriptures continue to unfold, the only sigh of relief 
the only hopeful overtone in the Word of God is perhaps best summarized by one word, Emmanuel. God with us. To hear the voice of God go from, where are you, to God with us, is the plot structure, if you will, of the gospel. It is the moment that where the two dots of man's separation from God's holiness are at the cross of Jesus Christ. This Genesis 3 verses 8 through 19 account is, I'll give you perhaps a new word, a compendious moment. Compendious means concise and comprehensive. The Word of God is so amazing. We can read half a sentence. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We can read a three-word question. Where are you? And it speaks so much. And it's compendious power. It's concise, and it's comprehensive. The voice of God speaks in Genesis to the ears of man. And it's an amazing note indeed. And it sets up this incredible narrative of all of Scripture. And it's point number one in this morning's message, Heaven's Loudspeaker. Let's move to point number two, Exodus 19. We've just covered the first bookend, the first compendious moment, if you will, of the audible voice of God. Secondly, as God's covenant plan and His progressive revelation unfolds to man, we find moments like this in the Exodus experience of Israel. In Exodus 19, the voice of the Lord appears again, and this time to many, but in a different form. Have you note before we read, first of all, the sort of new tone of this interaction? This is a far cry from a gentle or a calling in the ears of where are you in the cool of the garden. Listen to the contrast of the voice of God from Mount Sinai as we read in Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, 
There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. and They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Chapter 20, verse 1, The Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 9 tells us the desired effect of this moment of God's audible voice in the experience of the ch children of Israel. Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear and speak with you and may also believe you forever. This moment was designed to affect an eternal impression on the soul's consciousness of this nation, on the soul and consciousness of this nation, of this covenant people. You notice the difference, as I mentioned before, in the tone, as it were. God comes in glory, but it's an environment of judgment. It is a declaration of power. It is a manifest manifestation of His ability to absolutely, fearfully destroy anything evil and wicked that would even come close to daring to standing in His holy presence. You see that prohibitions were given to the people. And during this time, though the voice of the Lord was heard, it wasn't this gentle wooing and calling of a distant lover come near with me be with me no the people heard God in all his power and manifest glory and what was emphasized there was a segregation between sinfulness and holiness and before they even could stand in the symbolic graces of God they must be cleansed they must be consecrated and boundaries were set up, and clear-cut distinctions were made to communicate in the culture of this people and their experience that you cannot just go and run back to the Garden of Eden as it were. In your mind, in your soul, in your consciousness, there's a flaming sword that guards the gate, a flaming sword of judgment that says, none may pass. None may pass, that is, save those whose sins are covered by the ultimate cleansing power and consecrating grace 
of Jesus Christ alone. Number three, Daniel 4. Point number one was creation, covenant, and curse. Point number two was law over the nations. That was the context of the Almighty God's introduction of His law, His standards of righteousness that would rule over the nation and by which the nation and nations would be judged. The testimony of God's revelation was heeded by some but a precious few. It was abandoned and ignored, marginalized and forgotten and mocked by most. And one of these, an emperor, point number three is an emperor subpoenaed. That is, a writ, a decree was issued to an emperor. A representative moment of civic reckoning. There was a powerful king, the empire Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, who himself heard the audible voice of God. The loudspeaker of heaven itself was tuned his direction. Why? Because he failed to bow before the God, the King of heaven, the Lord over the nations. And in this emblematic moment, we have this record in Daniel 4. We read in verse 30, the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. This audible voice from heaven was fulfilled instantaneously. And he, we continue to read in verse 33 what happened. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The end of the story we read, verses 34, to the end of the chapter. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures. Endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, he does not forget though. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God chose this moment. Perhaps the greatest empire the world had known to this time and in some ways we still marvel at the wonders that, this, that represented this empire, the hanging 
gardens of Babylon come to mind and so on. God chose this moment as emblematic, as a representative time in history to demonstrate to us that no matter the reigning king on whatever throne of empire, nation, or whatever, at any given time, he is and forever will be king of heaven. And only in his common grace does he bear with an arrogance and pride of man who would declare himself glorious above him to any length and any extent. This empire, Babylon, was preceded by Assyria. It was followed by Persia, then by Greece, then by Rome, then by the Spanish Empire, the French Empire, these in the West, the English Empire. We remember in this last century the Soviet Empire. What do all these empires have in common? What do all those empires have in common? They're nowhere to be found today. They're all destroyed, as Daniel prophesied they would be. The stone representing the authority of the king of heaven smashed the statue and not a single emperor stands. They're crushed in the dust of his omnipotence. They're crushed under the stone because they refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of their society, of their soul, their life. There's an empire today that yet remains our own nation. Perhaps you could call an empire of sorts the American empire. The United States has holdings and influence all over the globe. But I'm here to tell you, we will endure the same fate if we don't and if our rulers don't acknowledge the King of Heaven. The audible voice, the loudspeaker of heaven, was trained into the ears with the deafening blast of the sovereignty and lordship of the Almighty God so that every king of the earth might bow before him and kiss the son lest he be angry in the way, Psalm 2. We still need to learn that lesson. Now, point number four is a shift to New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And here we have the events beginning to unfold that surround Christmas time. To this point in redemptive history, there has been intermittent through the centuries, audible voice of God from the heavens, until the relative silence is broken. Perhaps the moment of significance that might come to your mind was the verse we opened with this morning, Luke 2, 8-15, through 15, when the heavens were filled with a host of angelic beings announcing that a king had been born. Hark the herald angels sing, we sang this morning, glory to the newborn king. This was an announcement fitting for the king of the universe who was enthroned in a lowly manger, just miles, no doubt, from where these shepherds, this lowly class, was guarding their sheep. Once more, the voice of heaven broke through the silence, and announced that the moment had arrived. Once again, the heavens were sounding were with the news. They were the, not, they were the reactivated sounding board and megaphone for divine revelation. Multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. What's interesting about the remaining points of this message these points of God's audible intervention into the ears of mankind in part is because they're so compressed. There was one man 
John, who perhaps was able to hear the voice of God from the heavenly several times. They're compressed at this time in history, and they're heightened in their amplification and frequency because these were the events, and this was the moment that all of history had been waiting for, the dawning of the birth of Jesus Christ, the experience of mankind. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, when Jesus is baptized, we have this account. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The loudspeaker from heaven announced, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the record of Matthew, you remember? The Spirit that descended upon Jesus immediately leads him following in chapter 4 to his temptation in the wilderness. And then in chapter, the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, the Spirit leads him to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah 1 through 7, where the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then verse 17 of chapter 4, Matthew's gospel records, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we see, again as we plot on the map of God's plan, where the last time we heard at least in the record of today's message, the audible voice from heaven in the pages of Scripture, an imposter was held to account, a king who failed to acknowledge the kingdom of heaven. The next time we hear a voice from heaven, it announces not the imposter, but announces the actual king of the universe, the king of heaven, the beloved son of the heavenly father with whom he is well pleased the legitimate ruler, the potentate of all of history, heaven, earth, and everything that was and will ever be. And he comes preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here he comes to earth to bring his kingdom, his rule, and his reign. Point number five, as we continue to move plotting this course and this overview. We've covered number one in Genesis, creation, covenant, and curse. Number two, God delivers the law over the nations. Number three, an emperor is called to account and and to reckon with the, the court that issues a subpoena from heaven. 
Number four, the baptism of Jesus Christ is attended with a voice that affirms his identity from the heavenlies, from the throne of Almighty God, and his voice from his own courts ring, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then we pick up in Luke chapter 9 of a glorious moment of revelation again, the transfiguration. Here we have an, a, gl- a glimpse, a precursor to the ascended glory of Christ that three privileged disciples were able to see. But all of us are pri- privileged to experience through the written record this morning. 28 verse 35 in Luke 9, we read the following. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him, that is Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. At this moment, only three had the privilege, in this side of glory anyway, to hear audibly, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. How amazing that moment must have been. Peter referred to it again in in his second epistle as proof positive of the apostles That what they delivered in their writings and in their authority was no mere hearsay. They were privileged to see and to experience in their ears and with their eyes the incarnation of the Son of God. And in Peter's case and two other apostles, the transfiguration of the same. On that moment, this precursor to the ascended glory, these three had the privilege of encountering something that they could not understand as yet. And Peter evidenced that when he said, let us build some temples here. Now that would be a natural response, and it seems like a good one too. Peter could not imagine a more incredible moment of unity in the presence of God. Surely in Peter's mind, if there was ever an Emmanuel moment, a fulfillment of the prophecies of old, of God with us, God dwelling with man. This must be it. Let's pause here, inaugurate this moment. This certainly must be the apex of the human experience of unity, of experiencing once again the glory 
of God and a reconciliation in the experience of mankind with the revelation of God's almighty truth. But it wasn't quite yet complete. Jesus Christ had more work yet to be done. And the reconciliation and the glory that was planned, this was just a glimpse. This was just a foreshadow. And the experience of the disciples was quite literally nothing compared to what would be their redemptive experience after Jesus Christ had taken on the full weight of His mission, which was the context and theme of the conversation that He had with Moses and Elijah. Again, verse 30, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure. What were they talking about? Well, quite literally, the language, the original language, it's his exodus. It's his moment of becoming the delivering lamb for his people. The Paschal lamb represented in the exodus moment of the ancient Israelites would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, very shortly on Calvary. The moment of his departure to the cross and from life to death. But we know He would not stay in the tomb, but He would be resurrected. And in His resurrected form, shades of glory were then available to the disciples to behold, but nothing compared to what He now emanates from His throne of glory at the right hand of the Father. You talk about dazzling white. You talk about clothing that's bleached so white it would blind a mere human eye. You talk about a face, fully God, yes, and fully man altered in this moment to reflect the glory and resplendence of the throne room of God. It's nothing in this moment compared to the, even the revelation that John received at the end of the book where we'll close when we see him with his hair white as snow and his eyes glowing, and a sword of flaming fire proceeding from his mouth, and a golden sash girding him about, and feet like bronze, and commanding as the general of all history from the throne room of God, the will of the Almighty. Transfiguration was an incredible moment where the loudspeaker of heaven announced, This is my one, this is my son, listen to him. And so we listen today. Number six. John chapter 12. This moment is, to my knowledge, the third and final record in the Gospels of the audible voice of God. Where those who were surrounding Jesus Christ heard something in their own ears, maybe not the words themselves, but at least something that sounded like what the Israelites experienced on Sinai. And this is another moment that's profound as we read in John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? This is Jesus crying out in prayer and anguish, knowing what would shortly befall him. Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Let me read that again, verse 27. Now is my soul trouble, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A voice came from heaven again. Verse 28, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Father God declaring, He has glorified His name and He will glorify it. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to Him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, and he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Just like at Sinai, where the designed purpose of this interaction, where the announcement from the heavenlies had a sovereign intent for the hearers, it was meant to make an internal, eternal impression upon the souls of those who were gathered listening to Jesus' teaching. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, the answer to all your prayers, the hope of all of history is unfolding before you. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This voice has come, Jesus is saying. So that when he is lifted up, when he takes on his passion, that they would know that it did not illustrate the success of the Roman government or the Jewish mob or the sin of mankind or the reign of Satan. No, this was the Lord's name being glorified in making the sacrifice for the salvation of His own who would bear His name. This moment of God's audible intervention in history thunders with the truth that the cross is central to the work of Christ. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this manner of death would be the salvation of mankind. And the glory of Son and Father would comprise the cross. The glory of God would be manifestly evident in the finished work of redemption. And when Christ echoed, it is finished, from that tree on Calvary, the world who had ears to hear would know that this man who prophesied this moment had just made propitiation for their sins. The final point of today's message is in Revelation chapter 21. We move from the bookend of creation, covenant, and curse in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19. This concise and comprehensive, that is, compendious moment this fitting introduction of the narrative of the Scriptures, the story that God has written of reconciliation 
between himself and mankind. We move from that fitting bookend in Genesis to a fitting bookend in Revelation. Notice the themes in Scripture, too many of which to cover this morning, that are touched on in these verses. Before we read, it is the apex, the crescendo, the culmination. It is this grand finale of God with us, revealed in us, Emmanuel. Where there had just been a whisper and a shade, a glimpse in the darkness, a single ray on the distant horizon in Genesis chapter 3. We think of the serpent's head being crushed by the bruised heel of Christ. Now the heavens have been opened and the veil of revelation has been split in two and pulled back for our benefit. And we see in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 8 the revelation grand finale of the work of Jesus Christ that we celebrate this Christmas and look forward to in glory. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And here it is, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Again, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And notice the change in tone. We remember these moments in the Old Testament of unapproachable fire. But now listen. Listen to the compassionate unity that we will share with the Almighty. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Isaiah 7, 14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
In that final verse we read, I will be his God and he will be my son. Here is the revelation finale, the crescendo, the grand finale of redemptive history. It's Emmanuel prophesied and fulfilled ultimately. It is Jesus Christ seated in the heavenlies. It is the Almighty echoing from the throne the final words of reconciliation and judgment as the scriptures continue. And we hear these closing and conclusive decrees from the Almighty. It is done. And I have the authority and power to accomplish it and declare it. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And here we have the prophecy of the covenant zenith of all of redemptive history in the Word of God when the Bible declares through the voice of God and the ears of John when he received this revelation in 21.7, I will be his God and he will be my son. This Christmas May we remember these sweeping themes that tie together the fear of God, His majesty and power, His love paid for by the blood of His Son, and the future that is absolutely certain for everyone who calls the Messiah His own, His Lord and His Savior. And let us not forget that in glory one day we will rule and reign with Him and will experience Emmanuel, God with us in such an amazing manifest degree that every sorrow, regret, and sin, and sighing, and sickness will be an utter distant memory, if even that. But forever we will sing His praise before His throne. And because God sent His only Son, we ourselves can be His sons. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, the story of Scripture is so beautiful, so intricate, so intense, so powerful, so life-changing that words scarce can contain the glory of that it holds for those that love you and are called according to its purpose. We thank you, therefore, that you have given us all of these scriptures that we've read this morning and so many more to meditate on every day until you return. And we thank you for the glorious glorious calling of discovery and praise that we look forward to when we are united with you, when we pass from this veil of tears through the veil that Christ has ripped open by His blood, and enter freely and boldly into glory, Uh, we will share such an amazing reuniting with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ our Lord that it will take eternity to offer you the praises you deserve. We thank you for these truths this Christmas. May they be transforming to us as we think about them. And may they be flowing through us as we seek to proclaim them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.